Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be found in Genesis chapter 37, starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading to verse 11. And in your pew Bibles, that will be on page 31. Again, that's Genesis chapter 37, starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading to verse 11. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generation of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha, his father's wives. And Joseph bore a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're entering in the home stretch, if you can believe it, of our study of Genesis, and it's clear that the narrator has saved the best till last. Uh, so we go from the very ordinary account of the generations of Esau in chapter 36 to the extraordinary account of the, ge- of the generations of Jacob, which begin here in chapter 37. And this story is about the sons of Jacob. In particular, uh, the spotlight's going to be on Joseph and to a lesser degree Judah. And I think you'll agree with me in my assessment that this is surely one of the most fascinating portions in all of Scripture. It has all of the elements. It's got uh, conflict, suspense, irony. It's got wonderful character development has salvation and reconciliation. It's all the good stuff packed into one story. And there's good reason why a story like this can uh, generate so so much spinoff. You know, there's good reason why a play based on this story, for example, can enjoy such a long run on Broadway. Um, There's good reason why a story like this would sell out sight and sound for months on end. I was only six or seven, but I vividly remember being captivated by a performance of this story by my aunt's uh, Christian Academy in Toronto. Um, She was in high school and part of the drama club there, and they put on a performance of this story, and as a kid, I was just drawn in. Um, Incidentally, the you know, the students who played the Egyptians had bronzed their skin for the role, and as much as they probably want those images destroyed, 
uh, right now, uh, those are indelibly etched in my mind. Now, by the way, there's some danger here. Anytime that we are, or think that we are super familiar with a story, our minds tend to switch into autopilot. And it's difficult for us to actively listen and learn. Furthermore, we want to make sure that what we're familiar with is the actual content of Scripture and not some theatrical adaptation. Okay, in other words, we, we need to understand this story as told by Moses and not as told by, say, Andrew Lloyd Webber or Larry the Cucumber. Another danger is one that I personally feel very acutely. You know, this story is just so brilliant and beautiful. Simply in the reading of it, that the prospect of having to preach it is a little bit paralyzing, if I'm being honest. Anything that I might add seems rather like a subtraction. I, I feel very much the same way that Luther did when he came to this portion of scripture in his lectures. He, he said this, This story is outstanding and memorable among the rest of the stories of the patriarchs and plainly of such a kind that I am not able to do it justice in words or thoughts. Therefore, I could wish to leave its exposition to others who far excel me in learning and eloquence, but because the order of the exposition begun requires that we should at least say something, we shall read through the story itself, admirable and lofty as it truly is, even though we cannot treat it and explain it, according to its worth. Amen, Marty. I, I feel you. But then, but then I remember that the same God who orchestrated these events, the, the same spirit who inspired these words, is the same spirit who gives unction to preach. And it's the same spirit who helps us to hear and understand and believe. So I'm going to endeavor to say something, and I'm going to do it confidently and expectantly, trusting that the Lord is going to honor his word. Now, the passage this morning serves as a very effective opening to the Joseph story. And it gives us the context, it introduces us to some of the main characters, it establishes the conflict, it foreshadows the resolution and um, in the time that we have, let's just organize our thoughts under three headings as they pertain to Joseph, who, by the way, I'll tell you this right off the bat, Joseph is only a supporting character in this cast. We want to see what these three points teach us about the main character. But these three things are about Joseph. Uh, we'll consider first his fatherland, second his family, and third his future. First though, Joseph's fatherland. Now this story begins really in the standard way and we're so far into the book of Genesis that we can probably expect this. We've seen it a number of times. Before, we've seen that each major division 
in Genesis is kind of introduced with the words, these are the generations of X. And whenever you come across that formula, it's as if you're hearing the words, once upon a time. So last week we, we looked at the material in chapter 36, which were the generations of Esau. These are the generations of Esau. You can see that formula in verses 1 and 9. And now, in chapter 37, verse 2, we're treated to the generations of Jacob. Now, it's also part of the standard pattern that the narrator tells us something about the non-elect line before giving us a much more detailed account of the chosen line. Okay, so it's, it's the standard pattern that Esau would come before Jacob in terms of the explanation. It's the same kind of strategy that I had when I was a kid at Thanksgiving dinners. You know, my mom would um, make me take a little bit of everything. And that was fine for the most part, but I didn't, at that time, I didn't like cranberries. Okay, I know that's an abomination to some of you for me to say that, but they, at least the ones that my mom served, they were hairy. You know, I didn't like the texture. They were just too, I don't know, I know another way to say it. They're hairy. It's hard to swallow. I didn't know that the jelly, cranberry jelly existed where you could just slurp it down. But anyway, I had to, I was made to try just a spoonful. So I'd hold my nose and eat it really fast. And I'd eat it first, you know, to, so I could get it out of the way and move on to the good stuff. In the same way, Esau was hairy. Literally, he's hairy. And hated in terms of the fact that he's not the chosen one. And so the narrator has dealt with him first. And now we get to move on to the good stuff. So we're moving on to consider the one that the Lord has loved and set his affection on. These are now the generations of Jacob. And you'll notice that Jacob himself doesn't garner much attention in the account that follows. Rather, as I said, the spotlight is going to be primarily on Joseph, on this one son, and to some degree, as we'll see, on Judah. But what is mentioned about Jacob, I think, is very important. Look at verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning. Now, technically, verse 1 probably should be at the bottom of chapter 36. It should be the last verse of chapter 36 rather than the first verse of 37 because it's meant to draw a strong contrast between Jacob and his brother Esau. Esau, you'll remember, who deliberately chose to move away from his father's land. He, he, he made a deliberate decision to leave the land of promise, the land of blessing, and instead he settles in the hill country of Seir. Furthermore, Esau has deliberately chosen to marry women outside of his father's clan, outside of the faith, if it were, if you will. And the, the bottom line here is that Esau has rejected everything pertaining to the faith of his father. 
Jacob, on the other hand, is in the fatherland. He's in the land of his father's sojournings. And I want you to understand that that's not just a statement about his, his GPS coordinates. That's, that's a statement about his spiritual orientation. He, this is to say that Jacob is in the same spot that his father Isaac was, and he's in the same spot that his grandfather Abraham was, which is to say that he's standing in faith in this land. And the very best description of this multi-generational mindset is in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 to 10. It says this, By faith Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, Hebrews 11 goes on to describe faith as a standing in which, not yet having received the thing that has been promised, it's a person that is able to see them and to greet them from afar. Faith is when you consider yourself to be a, a stranger and an alien, an exile in the earth. And that's exactly what Jacob is right now. That's explaining Jacob to a T. He's smack dab in the middle of the land that God has promised to give to him and to his offspring, though as of yet it is not theirs. They don't have possession of it. And notice that he, that he says that he's sojourning. The text says that he's sojourning. And you know this, to sojourn is to stay for a time in a place that is not your home. Contrast that with Esau, who has settled into the land of Seir. Those are two opposite orientations, do you see? One has settled, and one is merely sojourning. One of those looks merely to the present. The other looks expectantly into the future. One is temporary, and one is lasting, and it's not real obvious at first glance which one is which. Settling really requires only sight. Sojourning, on the other hand, requires faith. So it's clear that Joseph has the same orientation as his father. We're going to discover him to be a man of faith. We're going to see him as one who is tethered to the promises of God and, and therefore to the land of promise. To be sure, the, the events of the next dozen chapters are going to test everybody's faith and it's even going to result in the removal of them temporarily from the land of promise. But if you read further in Hebrews chapter 11, if you, if you read verse 22 of that chapter, for example, you'll have an idea of what's going to go on at the end of the story. Hebrews 11.22 says this, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites 
and gave directions concerning his bones. Do you see what's going on there? I hate to give away the end of the story right at the beginning, but I do want you to just understand that from start to finish, Joseph is oriented around the promise and around the land of the promise. And he's now, at the end of his life, giving specific instructions about what's going to happen to the Israelites and what needs to happen to his skeleton, which is that they, all of it needs to go back to the land of the promise. It's got to go back to the fatherland because that's where the promises of God were going to be fulfilled. And all of this may have gone down thousands of years ago, but it seems to me that you and I have been called to fundamentally a similar sort of life. On the one hand, yes, all of the the promises that have ever been given have been fulfilled in Christ through his life and death and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father. So these promises are sure, they are certain, and they are ours to a degree. But there is also a sense in which we have not yet come into full possession of these promises until Christ returns and brings us all the way home. So we are still seeking a homeland to use the language of, of Hebrews there. Again, the author to Hebrews puts it best when he writes, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So I think it's, it's worth asking, just pause in the story for a minute and ask yourself, when it comes to this earth, are you a settler or a sojourner? What is your orientation? What is your fatherland? Let's put it that way. Is, is the world your home? Or are you just a passing through? There, there's really no shortage of helpful diagnostic types of tools right now in the present time that might be helpful to you. So for example, just, I'm just taking one example. When you're scouring Black Friday ads, is your heart revealing you, in that moment, is your heart revealing itself to be a settler or a sojourner? You wonder what, what, is that, what, what does one have to do with the other? Black Friday ads. Well, you think about that, and you think about what, what your heart is actually longing for and going after. I don't think that there's any question, I think we can all agree with this, that our country currently is a dumpster fire. Now, if you're feeling dizzy, by the way, that's just our culture circling the toilet bowl. You, I'm not crazy, right? You're seeing the same things as I am. So that, that's not really a, a helpful question, whether or not that's happening. The more helpful question, the diagnostic question is, does that fact surprise you? Does it disappoint you? Does it make you fearful? 
And then when you dream about what the fix is to that problem, how far away is that solution that you've come up with in your mind? Is it the midterms? Is it 2024? Or is it when the new Jerusalem descends? Are you, friends, a settler or a sojourner? And I wonder if you've considered this, that the collapse of the culture, hyperinflation, the sad state of your finances, the damage that a brain-dead deer has done to your vehicle, the fact that you've been uprooted from your home, have you, ever, have you considered that these might actually be the grace of God in your life to, to wean you off of this world? To, to make you long instead for, for something that's going to last, a lasting city? Have you, have you given much thought to whether these things in your life are actually designed there by a loving and a gracious Heavenly Father to call you back to the fatherland? Well, this is the setting of our story. Joseph, like Jacob, and like Isaac, and like Abraham, are sojourning in faith in the fatherland. Now let's look secondly at Joseph's family. Joseph's family. Let me just come right to the point and give you a one-word summary of this family. That word is dysfunctional. If there's one consolation, it's that for some reason, dysfunctional families are the perfect raw material for great stories. Um, you can find lots of examples of this in classic literature. Um, and you can certainly see good evidence of this in modern sitcoms, although I don't believe modern sitcoms are, for the most part, great stories. Someone asked me recently if I've ever watch the show Everyone, Everybody Loves Raymond? And I answered that person that I, I've actually only seen a portion of one episode because it was just too cringe. Okay, like I... that The level of dysfunction in that family made me physically uncomfortable. And I don't, I'm not being overly dramatic. Well, let's just be honest here. Jacob's family makes the Barones look like the Cleavers, if you can follow that. So for starters, I, I just mean to say it's very, very dysfunctional. So for starters, Jacob's 12 boys are from four different women. Two sisters, Leah and Rachel, and their two maids, Zilpah and Bilhah. And we've already studied all of the gory details, so we don't have to get into that again, except to say that this was basically the OGK, th this was the original instance of, Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister, and Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man. It's, it's a mess. And again, we don't need to rehash all of that. But what we're discovering here is some more of the fallout that, that has come from that whole arrangement. 
this is just a vivid illustration, if you needed it, of the fact that God's design is good. It's the best. His design, of course, is one man and one woman. And to multiply spouses is to multiply sin and trouble. I think that would be the message, one of the messages of the Old Testament. So Joseph at 17 is one of the youngest sons. He, he is, as Jacob will say, the son of my old age. But he's also the oldest boy of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And we saw last week that Rachel passed away giving birth to Benjamin. And the memory of Rachel still looms very large in this account. You can see vestiges of it in verse 2. So the, the, natural, the normal way that J- Jacob's four wives would be listed out is in order of their age and then their social status. Okay, so the, the list should go Leah, Rachel, then Zilpah, who's Leah's maid, and then Bilhah, who's Rachel's maid. But when these two maids are mentioned, when they're listed in verse 2, Bilhah, Rachel's maid, is listed first. And that is because she is the maid of the favorite. So what you have then is very clear lines of favoritism among the wives, and then that just trickles down to favoritism that is expressed in the children. Furthermore, what we see here are siblings that are fragmenting along these same kinds of lines. So we read that as a young shepherd, Joseph is assigned to be the assistant to the, son of Bil, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. In other words, the sons of the concubines were segregated into their own work crew. And Joseph gets assigned to that particular work crew. But do you see how all of these lines of fragmentation are, are falling out in this family? And then in verse 3, the narrator makes no bones about the fact that Joseph was dad's favorite. The narrator makes no bones about it because Jacob made no bones about it. He, sing- he was obvious about all of this. He singled Joseph out for special treatment. Most notably, he gave him a very special, costly, distinctive robe. And we're very familiar with, with this uh, piece of information. Uh, we believe that this was a coat of many colors. You can probably just instantly call up an image of that in your mind's eye. It's an amazing technicolor dream coat, if, to coin a phrase. However, on, on further inspection, that might not be exactly what the Hebrew phrase means. It might be, it, might, it seems like it's more accurate to, to picture this as a long robe that reaches the extremities, so it goes all the way down to the wrists and to the ankles. And uh, it's one that is heavily decorated or ornamented in some way. The closest parallel in the Old Testament that we have to this word, this phrase, 
has this kind of a garment on a princess, which you know, helps us to understand that this is probably a royal garment. Jo- Jacob has given Joseph an article of clothing, costly, ornamented, which gives him the distinctive flavor of being royalty wherever he goes. You can just imagine how this would play out you know, when Joseph walks out into the fields where his brothers are keeping sheep and he, he walks out to them dressed like Liberace. So not only was this family fragmenting along maternal lines and material lines, but also along moral lines. So when Joseph would spend a day keeping sheep with his older brothers, he, he came home with a bad report about them to his father. And apparently, again, we're spared the the gory details, but apparently these men are involved in some unnamed, sketchy behavior. And Joseph would be compelled to say something about it. And commentators have very divergent opinions about whether these kinds of details presents Joseph as a sort of goody tooth sandals. You know, like a, a, a bratty little tattletale who comes home crying to daddy. That is the, the opinion of, of some scholars. But then other, other people say, no, this is just Joseph troubled in his righteous soul about all of the evil that his brothers are involved in. And he, he doesn't want that to just be swept under the carpet. This is Joseph with like a, a, a moral... Um, intuition and instinct, a a desire to to live before the Lord. And here he's involved with brothers who have no mind for the Lord whatsoever. So I'll leave that to you to to form your opinion. Um, But again, I, I would want your opinion to be formed by scripture rather than some theatrical um, piece that you've seen. And that, that gets that, that idea of Joseph being a bratty tattletale kind of plays well in a movie or a play or even in Sunday school. It's a great little lesson to teach little kids. But I don't know, I don't believe that the narrator is leading us to that conclusion over the other one. I think this is just showing the fragmentation in this family along moral lines as well. Joseph has uh, a desire for righteousness and his brothers don't care one wit about that. In any case, this is not a flattering description of Jacob's family. Remember, too, what we're we're talking about right now in chapter 37 is the generations of Jacob, the chosen line. This 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 is supposed to be the people of God. We we're supposed to leave all of the pagans in chapter 36 with Esau's kids. But that's not the case. There, there's no strong distinction at this point in terms of sin and righteousness. We've already seen that two of these sons, Simeon and Levi, they ca- they've carried out a vindictive massacre at Shechem. Uh, in, last time we saw that Reuben is involved in incest. 
The sons of Bilhah and Zilpah in this passage are involved in some sort of evil out in the fields and uh, in and around the towns. And friends, we ain't seen nothing yet about what these boys are capable of. There is nothing good in these brothers. And so then we have... This is good because we're now furnished with one more example, as if we needed it, of how God's choice is not based on anything good that he discovers in the objects of his love. It's purely by grace that he has set his love and his affection on this family. And by grace, we're going to get to see how the Lord works in these evil men to make them worthy to be called his people. That's part of what makes the story so great. Now, this sort of dysfunction is the perfect raw material for the story of redemption. That's the kind of story that God is in the business of writing. And brothers and sisters, isn't this your story? Isn't this mine? Maybe the details aren't exactly the same. You know, maybe you weren't rescued out of a cesspool of favoritism and anger and jealousy and hatred but you were some sort of a hot mess right you were you were disobedient and dysfunctional in your own special little way and while you were his enemy the lord chose you while while we were yet sinners christ died for us and though we, we have a righteous standing now in Christ through the blood of Jesus, we still have sin that the Lord is gracious to, to work out of us. And the Lord is also gracious to work holiness into us. This is his work. This is the story that he's writing in your life and in mine and as wonderful as this particular story is, I am captivated by the drama that is in unfolding before my very eyes in the stories that the Lord is writing into your lives and his work of sanctification in you. That brings us to our third and final heading. I love Matt gave me some license here. He gave me a perfect excuse to... Uh, preach longer, but I'm, I'm not going to exasperate you. I'm going to try to pull this into a conclusion. But let's look first at this last point, Joseph's future. Joseph's future. Every great story has a great beginning. And part of what makes a beginning great is when there's subtle clues about what might be coming at the end. It's called foreshadowing. And it's a very delicate art because you don't want to give too much away. You want to just give a little bit of a teaser to, to whet the appetite. And we're treated to exactly this in verses 5 to 11. This foreshadowing comes by way of two dreams that Jacob has, dreams that he shares with his family. In the first dream, Jacob is out with his brothers in the fields like they typically are, except this time they're not looking after cattle or livestock. They're, looking, they're cash cropping, they're harvesting. Uh, they'd be very familiar with this image 
binding sheaves. And suddenly the sheaf that Joseph bound suddenly arose and stood upright, and the brothers' sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to his sheaf. That's the dream. And then he has a second dream, which is, is similar to the first, but it's heightened, literally, and in every way. So instead of earthly elements, this second dream has heavenly elements, the sun, the moon, the stars. And, and what Joseph saw in that dream was that these heavenly bodies were bowing down to him. Now, what are we to make of all this? First, I hope that you can, you can just tell right off the bat that the depictions of Joseph that we get from Broadway musicals and other productions are not always accurate. And they're not accurate at this point. Be, I, I don't know, have, they, have these other things that you've seen about Joseph plays or whatever, have they left you with the idea that, that Joseph was kind of just, just a dreamer? You know, you might say about him the same thing that you would say about John Lennon. You know, he's just a dreamer. He's not the only one. There's lots of people like that. That the type of guy who's always got his head in the clouds. He's always out there in la-la land. The kind of person that has big, lofty visions of how things ought to be. You might call them visions of grandeur. And he's regularly just kind of mustering up all of these ideas. I'm saying that's the wrong idea. That's the wrong picture to get of Joseph. It's likewise monstrous to suggest, as one musical does, that any dream will do. What? And, and they suggest that as if the power lies simply in one's imagination. If you just kind of give yourself over to being a dreamer like Joseph is. Well, this totally misses the point. Okay, Any dream will not do. These two specific dreams will do. And Joseph is not a dreamer. Okay, Verse 5 says that he had a dream, which is a lot more passive, it seems to me. Okay, This was not a dream of his own making, of his own concocting. This was a dream that was given to him. In other words, what we're talking about here is revelation, divine revelation. And in this way, we are finally introduced to the main character of this story, the Lord God himself. I realize that he's not mentioned yet by name, but this is one of the narrator's masterful devices, you know, to make us aware of the divine presence that is everywhere, that is behind every single action, even though... It's not, he's not called out specifically. A similar technique is, is used to very great effect in the book of Esther, you'll recall, where you will search long and hard to find any mention of the divine name, yet the Lord looms large in every single detail of that story. His providential hand is guiding every single actor, every detail to its predetermined end. 
That's the glory of the story. And this present story is also a story about providence and the sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people. You're going to come across lots of very ordinary things, but you need to understand, and right from the beginning, you need to understand that behind all of these actions are the hands of providence, the sovereign God of the universe is guiding all things to their predetermined end. You take what we know about dreams and visions in the book of Genesis so far, and it becomes very clear that Joseph's dreams are God's revelation of his plans for his family. It's also significant that there are two dreams. And if you'll allow me to just borrow a detail from a little bit later in the story, Joseph is going to say to Pharaoh, when it comes time to interpret his dreams, Pharaoh's dreams, Joseph will say that Pharaoh has been given two dreams. He he had revelatory dreams from God. And in in, uh, chapter 41, verse 32, we read that Joseph explains The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So the dream is a revelation. Two dreams are a testimony of the fact that it's a sure deal. It's a done deal. It's confirmation. It's going to happen and it's going to happen soon. And so, again, we're introduced right here at the beginning of the story to a God who is absolutely sovereign. A God who knows the end from the beginning. A God who has the power to fix events and to bring them about. A God who is pleased to reveal his purposes to his people. And we're told this, these kinds of things at the very beginning of this story so that we wouldn't get worried when bad stuff starts to happen. And bad stuff's going to start to happen pretty quickly here. We, we don't need to overly fear those things because we know right off the bat something about our God, that he is sovereign and that he is in absolute control. Not only that he knows that these things are going to happen, He's designed, he's written them into the plot because he is the divine author. You need to know in your story, in your life, that the main character in it is the Lord God and that he is working all things out for your good and for his glory. You need to know this ahead of time before the troubles come, before the trials come, so that you won't be um, disturbed, so that you won't be anxious about anything. Again, it would be truly, it would be ideal if you would come to truly understand this truth ahead of time, in preparation for all of the trials that will most assuredly come your way. So that no matter what happens, you won't be tempted to worry or wonder if God truly knows what he's doing or if God truly loves you. You can know those things for sure ahead of time and bank on them and let them buoy you through 
all of these turbulent times. And very quickly, let's just see what the family's reaction to these dreams is. It's not good. Let's, let's put it that way. But what's really interesting to me is that they, these brothers and Jacob immediately understand what these dreams mean. They need no interpreter. For starters, they know that these dreams have a meaning, which means that they know these dreams to be God's revelation. So, again, they don't, they don't struggle to know the meaning like the pagans in this story do. As we'll see, other people have dreams, but they have no clue what these dreams mean. The people of God understand the meaning of these dreams instantly, without any trouble whatsoever. These brothers understand the dreams almost instinctively, even the detail about the sun and the moon and how they represent mom and dad. It's amazing. And they understand the implication that the whole family will one day bow down to him with all of the traditional hierarchies and honor codes turned completely on their heads. They, they don't doubt that stuff for a second. They understand that. So the family's reaction to Joseph's dreams indicate that they understood these dreams perfectly and that they even believed them. How did the brothers react? Look at verse 9. Hatred. They hated him before. You know, he was the favorite. They hate that stupid coat. But they hate him even more now because of his dreams and because of his words. You, you understand, it's the word that they are reacting so strongly against. Here's another reaction. Verse 11. It says they were jealous of him. Listen, those reactions, anger, jealousy, those reactions only make sense if they perfectly understood and believed what God had revealed through those dreams. Think about it this way. If, if one of my sons comes to me and says, Dad, I had a dream last night where I'm going to be the next Bill Gates. Okay, my, my reaction... What, what if my reaction was jealousy? You know, what if, what if I was like, oh, not fair. I, I wanted to be built the next Bill Gates. My reaction is also not anger. You know, I don't explode at my kid and say, there's no way you're going to inject me with 5G. No, I, I would only react that way if I believed that my son's dreams were revealing actual truth. My, my reaction is more like, uh, Job, I think you must have eaten way too much turkey last night. My, my point simply is, the way that the brothers react is proof that they understood and were actively rejecting what God was presently revealing. So my question to you is, when, when God reveals truth to you, what is the proper way to respond? Jacob is a good example, I think. Not so much in his initial response. You know, initially he rebukes his son. He's like, really, Joe? 
You expect that me, you expect me and your mom to bow down before you? I'm not, I'm not so much talking about that initial response. I'm thinking more of his ultimate response, which we find in the, in the beautiful closing line of this passage. It says this, But his father kept the saying in mind. He kept the saying in mind. That rings a little bit of a bell, doesn't it? It's very reminiscent of Mary's response to the glorious things that God was revealing to her concerning her son, his son. We read that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. You, you understand that that is the posture of a person who truly believes what God has said. Even though they don't really, it's confusing about like how th- that is actually going to come to pass all of the details, we're not sure how it's all going to happen, but it is a belief that God says it's going to happen, and so it's going to happen, and I'm going to just believe it and live in the light of it. That, that's our proper response. This is what our response should be whenever we are confronted with the will of God and the Word of God. James instructs us along these lines in his letter. He says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. That's in response to the word. This is, this is how we, in his words, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Now, if the sons of Jacob were wise they would receive these dreams as the good news that they actually are. They would receive them as something to treasure, something to rejoice in, not something to rage at. Meekness would say, we are, we are a bunch of wicked brothers. We are, we are evil men. We may be the chosen family, but we desperately need to be saved. Praise the Lord that he hasn't left us. Praise the Lord that he has a plan for us. Praise the Lord that he's actually even going to raise up a deliverer for us. But we're starting to get ahead of ourselves. So you'll have to come back next week. Two weeks. But come back next week because Logan is going to uh, preach from Hebrews. But in two weeks we'll pick up this story In the meantime, brothers and sisters, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He's sovereign. He's good. He has made very great and precious promises to you, and he will most assuredly fulfill them. Friends, loosen your grip on the world and be loosed from the world's grip on you. Sojourn, don't settle. Believe his word. This week, whenever you're confronted with the will of God, with the word of God, decide that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to hear it and understand it and believe it and live in the light of it. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, but treasure it. And and friends, may we all treasure these things and ponder them in our hearts. Amen? Amen.